0: And you are more than welcome to take your kids back there now. And for those of you whose kids are staying in the service, we love having children with us, and so they are most welcome here. Uh, We have been going through over the last several months just our confession, which is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which recovered uh, many of the doctrines um, from the apostolic age uh, that were lost Over the centuries, it was kind of a a reassertion of that uh, as seen in Scripture. And over these last several weeks, we've been looking at chapter three, which deals specifically with uh, the decree of God. And this morning, uh, we are on chapter, or we're on chapter three, but we are on paragraph uh, three of that as well, which says, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace, others being left to act in their sins to their just condemnation to the praise of of His glorious justice. And then paragraph four, because I do think we read paragraph three last week, these angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed in their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. And so if you are in Christ, that is an inescapable reality that He holds you securely uh, and He won't let you go. And so encouraging news this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we have been going through this as well over the last couple of months too, and this morning we are in chapter 2, and we're going to look at particularly verses 13 uh, on down to verse 17, where we see Jesus encounter uh, a tax collector who Our text this morning indicates as Levi, which is a family name, and we know him better as Matthew. And so this is the calling, if you will, of the fifth disciple. And so I'm going to read starting with verse 13. Go down to verse 17, and then I will pray and ask for the Lord to help us and for the Holy Spirit to apply these words To our lives. And so the word of the Lord says this. It says, Then he, speaking of Christ, he went out again by the Sea of Galilee, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, okay, this Matthew that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and His disciples, for there were many, and they followed Him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw Him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to His disciples, How is it that He eats and He drinks with tax collectors and sinners? They were being accusatory there. When Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for not just inspiring it, the sacred text, God, but preserving it so that we could benefit from it, God, so that you may be Knowable to us. So grant us humility this morning. Help us to savor all that you are for us in Jesus. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen. So, <clears throat> our setting this morning it's it's along the the sea of galilee and and jesus continues as you notice in the text he continues to have this great multitude this this crowd that continues to search him out and to find him and to see him for for various reasons right as we looked at last week different Motives uh, are contained within the crowd that 's coming to see Christ and and continue to note as we move through the Gospel of Mark just what we saw last week, right We see Jesus teaching the multitude, right Verse thirteen says, and he taught them right so the the, the centerpiece of christ 's ministry is the preaching of the gospel, the, re- the preaching of repentance and faith, which is the preaching, Christ preaching himself. Okay, and, and the expansion, the, the priority being on the expansion of his kingdom. And so we, we want to pay attention to things like that that may be because of the familiarity with the text we may just gloss over, we may not notice, right? Because we've read this story. Those of us who have been in church for any length of time, we're very familiar with a story like this, or we're very familiar with the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so, so try to pay particular attention to these these words and as it relates to to um uh, what Jesus is prioritizing here and as 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 Christ is traveling and as he's preaching and as he's teaching the kingdom of God he in our text passes by Levi's house right again who we know is Matthew one of Christ's disciples we this is the calling of the fifth disciple and he is the writer of the gospel of Matthew and as we see here prior to coming to Christ Matthew was a tax collector he was a tax collector. Now, now paying a tax or one levying uh, a tax uh, isn't immoral in and of itself, right? We see the Apostle Paul, he charges the Roman church, as much as we would like to think that it's immoral, it's not, right? We see Paul in Romans 13, uh, verse 7 here, uh, he says, Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, okay? And so so taxes, paying them and being the one that charges the tax, right, or is setting the tax, that's not immoral in and of itself. And so it's not just that he was a tax collector and being a tax collector in and of itself was immoral. But in Romans 13, the words of the Apostle Paul, they come with particular restrictions, Okay, we, we have to remember from Romans 13 that governing officials, right? And this is something we miss very much in our society nowadays. Governing officials are called deacons. They're called deacons in the scripture. That's The word the, the apostle Paul uses in the Greek is diakonos is what he uses, which means servant. They're servants. They're servants of who? To be servants of God, right? They're servants of God. And so this means that governing officials, they will be held accountable by God. They'll be held accountable by God for the taxes that are charged amongst the other duties that they've been authorized to conduct according to the scripture. In other words, the the, the authority of the state, it's not absolute, regardless of what the state may deem legal or illegal, right? There are lines, there are boundaries, and it's clear that Levi, okay, known as Matthew, and and his companions that we see in our text this morning, that they're violating God's law, okay? They're violating God's boundary. And they're doing so because the amount of taxes that are being levied, that are being charged, and and just as as true in the case of Zacchaeus, right? If you remember him, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 and 10, right? just like Zacchaeus, the taxes that are being charged, it was a matter of fraud, it was a matter of fraud in a way in which these tax collectors and those in governing positions, they, 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 it was the way in which they were getting rich off of the, the, the backs, if you will, of, of hardworking people. And so they were using taxes as cover for selfish gain. Okay, so that, that's the reason why tax collecting is noted here in a derogatory sort of way. These men... Including Matthew excessively taxed people, they burdened people. to use God's words, they stole from people. right they were They were thieves, okay These tax collectors, they were in violation of the eighth commandment. and it doesn't matter how the tax collectors of the day might have uh, attempted to spin it. Right? What people were paying may have been called taxes by the tax collectors and by those in government, and they probably even gave virtuous reasons for the, why they were to be paid, right? This goes to build this and this, or this goes to meet this particular need in the community. But in the eyes of God, what they were really doing was theft. Again, it was, it was a breaking of the Eighth Commandment. The, the church father Eusebius, he called Matthew's employment compulsive overreaching, that's that's how he labeled what Matthew and these tax collectors were up to, compulsive overreaching. And we live in a day and age when we should understand what overreaching means, right? We understand that well. Governments tend to do this. Our government tends to do this. So Christ, he, he has a divine appointment with a thief. He has a divine appointment with a tax collector named Levi, family name, who we again know is Matthew. And Jesus commands Matthew to follow him, right? He says, follow me, much like what we see with the first four disciples that were called by Christ. And Christ, he didn't didn't ask Matthew, right? He commanded Matthew to follow. And Luke records for us in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, that Matthew, upon hearing the command of Christ, Luke says this, he left all, he rose up and he followed him. He left everything, he rose up, and he followed him. One of the reformers says this about this commandment. Powerful, he do the words witching, powerful words these. From the lips of him who never employed them without giving them resistless efficacy in the hearts of those they were spoken to. Matthew, he was in a way irresistibly drawn to Christ because Christ commanded Matthew to follow him. Right and a, and a dead man, a spiritually dead man, Right, he doesn't say, oh, I'm ready to spiritually come alive in the same way that a physical dead man doesn't say, I, I don't know if I'm ready to come alive yet. Right, Lazarus, he didn't reject Christ's command to resurrect, to come out of the tomb, right? If you're a Christian this morning, it's because the Holy Spirit of God, He's regenerated your heart to respond to the command of Christ, right? And you respond freely, but it's not because your will was free, right? Our wills, apart from the intervening work of the Spirit, are in bondage to sin, right? You act, you operate according to your nature. And the Holy Spirit of God, He gives us this new nature, And with this new nature comes the capacity to heed the call of Christ, the command of Christ to follow him. So for Matthew to to follow Jesus, it was to forsake his lying. It was to forsake his stealing. It was to leave it behind for the gain of knowing Christ Jesus. And Matthew was compelled to do so. Why? Why? Why was he compelled to do so? He loved money. He loved money. He was greedy. He was greedy. He did it, as we'll observe this morning, because when Jesus associates with sinners, he changes them from the inside out. He changes them. Right? He doesn't, he will not leave sinners the same way. And So if you're taking notes, that's the first point I would have you jot down jesus associates with sinners to transform them jesus associates with sinners to transform them again we we see christ personally change matthew right? matthew doesn't pull himself up by his bootstraps and 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 change prior to coming to christ he doesn't change and clean himself up and then finds his way to jesus that's not what we see happening here. Christ comes to him. Christ commands him, Matthew, to follow him, right? And that's a snapshot snapshot of what he does to every sinner that's ever become a Christian, right? Jesus, he commands us to forsake our sin and to follow him. He doesn't ignore sin in our lives. He's not flippant about sin in our lives. He doesn't brush it off. He doesn't treat it casually. Jesus is not content with the state of a sin-sick soul. One early church father said this when Jesus is attacked for mixing with sinners and taking as his disciples or this disciple a despised tax collector, one might ask, What could he possibly gain by doing so? Only the salvation of sinners. To blame Jesus for mingling with sinners would be like blaming a physician for stooping down over suffering and putting up with the vile smells in order to heal the sick. And we, we even see in our text that Jesus feasted with Matthew, with sinners, with tax collectors, at Matthew's house, and they followed him. Right, look at verse 13 with me. It happened as he, all right, Christ, was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and get this, and they followed him. They followed him. So so follow the narrative with me this morning. Jesus meets Matthew, okay? He meets Matthew. Matthew forsakes everything to follow Jesus. Matthew then invites Jesus over for this grand feast so that other sinners could collide with the Son of Man. And it it was a lot of people, right? Many. I don't know what that that means exactly in our text, but it, it seems like John Mark here is trying to indicate there were a substantial amount of people that were hosted here. It says, many. And then it says, they referring to the many, followed Christ. They followed Him. Now, as we see a passage like this, one that we're all very familiar with, we're probably also familiar with the abuses of this passage too. And and there's at least two ways that this passage of Scripture is abused. The the first way that we see it abused is found in, in the very words of the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? There, there's a sort of legalistic doctrine, if you will, that undergirds the criticism of Jesus associating with sinners. Right? We isolate ourselves when we fall into this ditch from who we perceive to be as less than. From those that we perceive to be sinners because you know, we don't want to be lumped in with them or we look down on them like second-class citizens, right? for, forgetting our own sins and forgetting our own needs to be forgiven. The second way that it's abused is in the way that we, we see a passage like this quoted nowadays as justification for being worldly and associating with worldliness, So so we we see this passage sometimes used as an excuse to tolerate and even approve of sin. And and, and it goes like this. Jesus hung out with sinners. Therefore, the casual nature in which I approach sin and worldliness that I tolerate in my life, the coarseness in my life and the lives of others is justified. And anyone who cautions against that, anyone who would say, wait, yeah, I'm not quite sure that's what that meant. would be charged with perhaps being a legalist or overdramatic or too sensitive or perhaps rude. Right, so abusing the passage in either ditch, right? either error, it, it cements, really, our disengagement from evangelism. That's kind of the, the trickle-down effect, if you will, of of, of of what happens. When either we 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 insulate ourselves, right? We either insulate ourselves from those who 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 we should be evangelizing, or we surround ourselves with people who, either in silence or in actual affirmation, condone their sin, condone their separation from the Lord. Many of us are surrounded by people regularly who, if they don't repent of sin and trust in Christ, they're headed straight for hell. But you would never know that by how we are around them because nothing about our lives has brought them face to face with their sin and with their Savior, which we'll talk a little bit about, talk more about in just, just a moment. But what we need to see here is that both ditches, The the ditch the ditch of legalism and the ditch of what we would call antinomianism or anti law or being against the law against God's law, right? Both of those ditches they can't rest at the feet of Jesus. Like Christ is not responsible for the abuse of those sorts of passages. He's not to blame for the abuse of this passage. Right? These sinners. who who dined with him, who he strategically put himself in front of, they were transformed by him. As we're looking at the text, Jesus is, is uncompromising in that he really has entered into our world. Truly man, right? truly man, and he's dwelt among us. He's tabernacled among us sinners without himself becoming a sinner and justifying, without him justifying sin in any way whatsoever. Right? Christ, the eternal God, he dwelt among us, he upheld the law, he preached the gospel, and people were in turn transformed by him. Right? Sinners were confronted with their sin, with the need to repent, and Christ clearly offered himself for the forgiveness of their sin. So Jesus, we see him in our passage, he associates with sinners, but he associates with sinners in an effort to transform them, is what we see going on in our passage. He says to the scribes and the Pharisees that he came to call the sick, Right, he came to call the sinner, to to call them away from what? From their sin. And toward what? Toward himself. It's the charge, that's the command that Christ gives. And we're included in that. Jesus saved us, sinners. And if you're a sinner this morning, who's professed Christ, the Bible now calls saint. Again, not because of anything that we've done, but because what Christ alone has done we have to remember and give glory to God alone for our salvation, that we have, in fact, been transformed by Christ, by the power of His Holy Spirit. We were by nature, upon doing nothing, just by nature, according to the Scripture, we were children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. But God, in His love for us, has made us alive with Christ, the Scripture says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Verse 4, so we give God glory alone for our salvation. We contributed nothing to our salvation except for our sin, except for our sin. And God, in His loving kindness, has led us to repentance. Jesus saves sinners. And if you're a sinner this morning who's not repented of your sin, you're a sinner this morning who's not trusted in Jesus Christ alone, He came to save you. He came to save you. Here in the command that he gave to Matthew, a command to you as well to repent and to follow him. And you can do that this very morning. You don't have to delay it. Don't be the Pharisee. Don't be a part of the the scribes that we see here who in this passage, in in, in their pride, and their arrogance, think that they're doing okay. They weren't doing okay. But in their pride, they're they're so prideful in this passage of Scripture. Who do they look down on in their pride? They look down on Christ. They look down on Christ. What arrogance is displayed in those who look down on the Son of Man? What arrogance is displayed in those who look down on God Himself? But that's exactly what the unbeliever does in his callous rejection of Jesus. The proud man says, I'm doing fine on my own. I'm doing fine on my own. I don't want Christ. I don't need Christ. Which gets to our second point this morning. The self-righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The self-righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me again. When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, he, he turns to these self-righteous men who happen to be the religious leaders, And he sums up for them very vividly the state of their soul. I didn't come for you. That's what he says to them. I didn't come for you. these, These people here, they perceive themselves to be righteous men. And their standard for righteousness is not measured by their status in Christ but rather their status in themselves. In other words, these men, they have faith in themselves. Believe in yourself. It's another way that we can put it, right? So these men here, they they, they equate their righteousness with their own good works. And, And because they were legalists, they in a lot of ways even made up the rules you know, to favor them according to the traditions of man. Right? Christ in other places called them whitewashed tombs. Right? We, we see Matthew, former tax collector, record that for us in Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. Right? They, these religious leaders, these scribes, they may have been impressive to others, and maybe they were impressive to one another, their reputation, but in reality, their hearts were far from God. God's not amused. He's not pleased. He's not impressed. And perhaps these religious leaders here, maybe they thought that Christ should have been dining with them and not dining with tax collectors and with sinners. Right? And, and, and you know, when I look at this, I I see that the, their heart posture really, it's summed up by the passage of Scripture that, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in our confession of sin. Luke chapter 18 verses 11 and 12, Jesus tells this story and he includes a religious leader in it. The Pharisee st- stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as, and he gives this example, even as this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give tithes to all that I possess. Right? The Pharisee here is certainly impressed with himself. He has the outward impressive appearance to onlookers. Right, Certainly he's worthy to, be, uh, to dine with this great teacher called Jesus. And certainly Jesus wouldn't choose to eat with a tax collector over him. Certainly, Jesus is impressed enough with him that, that Jesus would be honored if this Pharisee and if these scribes graced Jesus with their presence. And that's the heart posture that we're getting at here. When we compare ourselves to other people, we do so at our peril. We may do it in despair because our lives don't look like someone's life does on social media. But oftentimes we find ourselves, when we compare ourselves with other people, secretly judging other people or thinking about them or brooding or talking about them in ways that elevate us or that puff us up. Even if we don't say it, we have to be careful that our heart posture isn't, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. Instead, our prayer should be, but for the grace of God, there go I. 1 right? Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Right? Our, our standard of righteousness is not another person. It's the moral law of God that reveals to us God's unchanging character. When Isaiah drew near to our triune God, he couldn't help but confess in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Woe is me. Right? I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His eyes have seen the one who's not unclean. Comparatively, we're all unclean according to our God who the seraphim in that same passage declare in Trinitarian format, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. There were those at this party, this feast, who were close to Christ. And they saw, with eyes of faith, the uncompromising standard of righteousness. They saw their transgression of that very standard, and in turn, they forsook sin. And they trusted, they rested, they followed Jesus Christ. Then there were those who were blind, the ones who should have known better. And in the hardness of their hearts, they refused to see Christ as God, and they refused to see themselves in light of God's glorious standard. Instead, they, they declared themselves to be righteous, and they declared Christ and Christ's disciples to be morally questionable. Right? Do you see the, the blasphemous nature of our pride Here? Right, that these men would attempt to cast a shadow over Christ's person and over his work so that they could boast in themselves. So that they in their pride and in their self-importance could be exalted. Right? The mantra of the self-righteous is Christ must decrease and I must increase. That's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ came to save sinners. Christ came to save the sick, to to be counted amongst those who Christ came to save. For us to be counted amongst those, we have to see ourselves as sinners, as transgressors of God's glorious standard, and we turn away from our sins, and we turn and trust in Christ alone. So step one is admit you have a problem. All right. The last thing that I want to draw your attention to here this morning is that Christians should throw the best parties. Christians should throw the best parties. And I know that that seems jarring in some shape, form, or fashion to put it this way, but I kind of want it to stick with you. There's a real point to, to be made here. Okay, Matthew, he's, he's personally saved by Christ here. Okay, he's, he's personally saved by Jesus Christ. And what does he do? Right, his repentance and his newfound faith in Christ, it looks like a party. It looks like a party. Think about it this way once there was greed, once there was penny pinching, once there was stealing and hoarding treasures on earth. The repentance of Matthew looks now like generosity. It looks like lavishness. It looks like storing up treasures in heaven, all for the glory of God and the good of, 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 of neighbor. Right? So, so we're, we're getting at, at a changed heart posture here. Right. And it's not that I, that I'm, I'm saying, man, you should have this really expensive party that you should be throwing constantly. What I'm trying to, to focus us on is this, this heart posture of hospitality, if you will, this kind of evangelistic hospitality that, that comes from experiencing and knowing that God in Christ has been hospitable toward you that he's welcomed you into his family, that Jesus promises in the new heavens and the new earth that we will dine with him. That's the heart posture that we see here in Matthew. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's no enabling at Matthew's party. There's there's no condoning or giving a thumbs up or giving some sort of affirmation as to worldliness. It's not that kind of party. It's not that kind of party. We're not trying to duplicate the party of a non-believer. We're not trying to duplicate the party of someone that's not in Christ. We're allowing the glory of God to set the, the agenda, and to, to be the, the one who drives our loving well of individuals that we would be hospitable toward. And that's the kind of eating and drinking we see in Matthew's house. Back at verse 15 here, it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Matthew, again, the actual tax collector that hosted, he recorded it this way. Here's Matthew's words. Then Levi gave him, gave Christ a great feast in his own house, is what it says. And there was a great number, he goes on, of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. Luke five, twenty-nine. So Matthew, he he threw this. Grand, lavish party, the the kind of party that that people wanted to be at, the kind of hospitality that's warm and attractive, and in the midst of eating and drinking, an encounter with Christ happened that resulted, as we've already seen, in the conversion of many tax collectors and sinners. Matthew's hospitality put his friends on a collision course with Christ, and Christ here demonstrates for us just how powerful he is. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is converting rich people in this passage. I don't know if that's been lost on us or not. He's converting rich people in this passage. And he said elsewhere that it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Again, Matthew says that, chapter 19, verse 24. Yet we have Christ saving these very people at this party. And the reason why I want us to note this and, and, and tie it for us to Christians being good at throwing a party or being hospitable, if you will, is because generosity and, and sacrificial love should shape the tenor and tone of our evangelistic efforts. And even our fellowshipping with one another as Christians. Right? We, we live in a society that's very inhospitable. And one way in which we can be salt and light is by being not just hospitable with one another, although we should be. Right? Repentance starts in the household of God. But hospitable with our unbelieving neighbors as well. And we aren't to be sour and stoic and rigid and, and stingy in our relationships with other people. Right? We, we should be, again, a, 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 of all people, hospitable and approachable and jolly and thick-skinned and generous, while at the same time clear and unwavering and dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. That's critical for us to see this morning. And patient in our depending upon the Holy Spirit of God, knowing that it's the Holy Spirit of God alone that shapes, that converts, that changes the sinner's heart. And so this morning... Not only do we want to remember that that Christ is the one who, in His association with sinners, transforms sinners, but we also want to remember that God in Christ, in thinking of that first point, has changed us, has redeemed us, has given us a new status, that we're now sons and daughters of the Most High King, and that there's no room for for pride at the feet of of our resurrected Savior who's left our sins graciously behind in the empty tomb. And that, that consideration for us should drive our hospitality. It should drive us to, again, dependent upon the grace of God and the Holy Spirit living in us, it should want us, it it should drive us to put people on a collision course with Christ Jesus. So why don't we go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together, Lord, in your word. And God, we pray that you would use it to encourage us, Lord. You would use it to drive our gratitude toward you for saving us, Lord. She would use it to humble us, God, that we would walk in humility dependent upon your spirit, Lord, taking advantage of of engaging our unbelieving neighbors, friends, with the gospel that you've entrusted to us, knowing that it's you alone who produces fruit. And we love you and we give you all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a portion of our service where we take the Lord's Supper, and if you